Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey haunt our country. We shall not weary and we shall not rest. We are thousands strong to tell the world reverse Roe versus Wade. I'm Ryan Anderson. And welcome again to Life After Dobbs, our podcast series that asks big questions about abortion and the future of the pro-life movement. My co-host, Alexandra DeSanctis, and I are joined in this episode by Dr. Aaron Cariotti, and we're excited to do a deep dive with him on some of the profound moral and bioethical questions surrounding abortion. Dr. Cariotti is a fellow at EPPC, where he directs our program in bioethics and American democracy. For many years, he was professor of psychiatry at the University of California, Irvine School of Medicine and director of the medical ethics program at UCI Health, where he chaired the ethics committee. Dr. Cariotti studied philosophy at the University of Notre Dame, and he earned his medical degree from Georgetown University. With his medical and ethical expertise, Dr. Cariotti is the perfect guest to help us walk through questions about when human life begins and how we define personhood, as well as some of the ethical issues surrounding pregnancy complications. Just a heads up that this conversation discusses pregnancy and abortion in medical detail in a few places, We trust that by examining these matters in detail, we can better understand just why abortion is so harmful, not only to the unborn, but to women and to the doctors who are involved. And now Alexandra will kick off our interview with Dr. Aaron Cariotti. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Aaron. Uh, And I want to start out. I know you're, you're a doctor, so you're a great person to speak to this first question. Ryan and I would love to know, is abortion ever medically necessary? The answer is simple and straightforward. The answer is, is clearly no. So the situations in which a mother's life or health may be at risk from a pregnancy occur typically later in the pregnancy when we've gotten to the point where induction of labor is medically feasible. So we can deliver uh, the child early if need be in order to interrupt the pregnancy in a case where a woman has, let's say, severe preeclampsia or HELP syndrome. And that may introduce some additional risks to the newborn, to the neonate. But neonatal care, as I think most people are aware, has made enormous strides in the last couple of decades. And the age at which a baby can survive outside the womb keeps getting pushed back further and further in pregnancy. So, you know, for a while, conventional wisdom was 24 weeks was sort of the cutoff for what we call viability or the ability of, of the fetus to survive outside the womb if uh, the baby is delivered. But that has been pushed back uh, in some cases to 22 weeks, uh, which is really sort of extraordinary. So there have been uh, debates about this in the courts. Um, but it's it's clear now, and the court has more or less accepted uh, the medical evidence on this, that there's really no situation in which it would be safer for the mother to have a late-term abortion versus um, an emergency C-section or induction of labor to deliver the baby. So abortion advocates have tried really hard to find rare circumstances or unusual uh, medical or pregnancy-related conditions where they could plausibly make the case that, well, here's, here's a situation in which if we deliver the baby 
instead of uh, doing an abortion, that's going to somehow elevate the medical risks to the mother. And they, they basically haven't been able to come up with a situation like that. So that's a long-winded uh, answer to a, a very simple question. But the simple answer to the question of whether abortion is ever medically necessary is that no, it's not. There's always a, an alternative uh, that does not involve the direct killing of the fetus. Yeah, and I appreciate the distinction you raised there, which is um, if there were a case where there was some sort of health risk to the mother, uh, she could simply give birth, right? And what we're talking about in abortion is a procedure where um, we're not ending pregnancy, right? They call it terminating pregnancy, but what they're actually doing is directly killing the unborn child. And this is a particularly important distinction because this claim that abortion can be necessary in you know health emergencies for the mother or uh, you know if there's there's a kind of disability diagnosis for the unborn child or something like that um, these are the justifications we often hear for abortion later in pregnancy the idea being you know women are going to die essentially if they can't get abortions but as you say there's no reason they can't simply uh, give birth and in fact they will most likely be safer if they do so and so abortion is actually not a solution in those cases. That's correct. And um, one of the things that both of you kind of just hit on, you both used the phrase direct killing um, when describing what an abortion is. And, um, you know, one of the things that Alexandra and I do in our book is um, point out that there are certain situations where, you know, what might be known as an indirect abortion or, you know, non-intentional uh, killing um, might be medically required. And so, Aaron, I wonder, you know, both as a physician and as a, you know, bioethics expert, could you talk about, you know, what about the case of ectoptic pregnancy or what about the case of uterine cancer? Um, you know, a lot of what we saw in the days after the leaked uh, Dobbs opinion were people saying that, you know, this would mean no medical care in the case of ectoptic pregnancy or no medical care in the case of uterine cancer. I mean, I even saw some people making the ludicrous claim that it would mean um, no medical care after a miscarriage um, to make sure that, you know, the, 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 all the um, um, body parts were um, uh, delivered. So could, could you help listeners understand, you know, the bioethical distinctions, the medical distinctions between intended and unintended and, and you know, what's going on in uh, medical treatments for things like ectoptic pregnancy or uterine cancer? Yeah, thanks, Ryan. This is a really important question. And clearly what, what you're describing in terms of abortion advocates saying that people are not going to get care for ectopic pregnancies or they're not going to be able to get what's called a, a dilation and evacuation after a miscarriage uh, where the fetal remains of, a, of an unborn child that's already dead are removed from the uterus. That, that is, of course, nonsense. It's, it's merely propaganda to try to scare people. So let's talk about ectopic pregnancy. I think this is a helpful example. So an ectopic pregnancy is a pregnancy in which uh, the fertilized ovum, so the, uh, the embryo in its earliest stage of development, instead of implanting in the uterus where a normal pregnancy occurs, implants in the fallopian tube. The fallopian tube is the structure that connects the ovary, which releases the egg, to the uterus. And actually, fertilization normally takes place in the fallopian tube, and then it takes about uh, three days for the embryo to traverse the fallopian tube and implant in the uterus. But in some cases, instead of doing that, the embryo will implant in the fallopian tube. And this results in a situation 
that is incompatible with the life and development of of the unborn child because the fallopian tube is not a structure can house a pregnancy. And in fact, if this situation uh, continues for long, it can become medically dangerous for the mother because as the embryo grows into the blastocyst and the, the subsequent stages of early development, it's getting bigger and bigger. And it's inside a very small structure uh, that it doesn't have room for it. And what can happen in these situations is that the fallopian tube can rupture uh, and very often these resolve spontaneously and, um, and the embryo dies and, uh, you know, nothing untoward happens. But in situations in which the embryo continues to grow, eventually the fallopian tube can rupture and that can cause bleeding in a, in a pretty emergent situation for the mother. So when ectopic pregnancies are discovered and diagnosed, uh, they need to be medically dealt with. And there's a procedure called the salpingectomy, which is basically a surgical procedure to, uh, to remove the fallopian tube, which has the uh, foreseeable, though not necessarily intended consequence of um, indirectly killing the, uh, the early human life, the embryo inside the fallopian tube. But as when we remove a cancer in the uterus uh, and other situations that are analogous, the, the principle of so-called principle of double effect applies here. And this is where we get into the ethics of, um, of, of killing um, directly, which I mentioned earlier, which is what abortion does, versus doing a medical procedure in which a foreseeable, though not necessarily intended consequence happens that, um, you know, if we could avoid it, we would avoid it. But this is a situation in which we, we perhaps can't avoid it. So it's perfectly ethically legitimate, according to most uh, moral systems, for for example, Catholic moral theology would allow for the salpingectomy in order to uh, prevent the ectopic rupture in the case of an ectopic pregnancy. Even knowing that the uh, even knowing that the embryo was going to die as an indirect consequence of that procedure. So all of those things, of course, under the law, would still be permissible women would still be able to get whatever care they needed for ectopic pregnancies or uterine cancer, uh, of course, for, for miscarriage, which does not involve abortion. So even though the name of the procedure is the same in the case of a miscarriage, and this, this can get somewhat confusing um, for women who don't understand the distinction, uh, but a dilation and extraction of a live fetus is, of course, an abortion, where as a dilation and extraction, or um, as it's known in an earlier stage of pregnancy, a dilation and curatage procedure of uh, of a miscarriage, where the unborn child is already has already died, is of course not an abortion, even though the same medical term is used to describe both procedures. That's really helpful. And um, I think this kind of medical clarity is just totally absent from so many of our conversations about abortion because abortion supporters like it that way, right? The first yeah, thing we want to talk right. about when abortion comes up is not, you know, I think abortion is great and should be legal throughout all nine months of pregnancy. They want to talk about how, you know, women with ectopic pregnancies are going to die or women who had, you know, had a miscarriage are going to be thrown in jail because people claim it was the same as an abortion or just these crazy cases that if we bring medical clarity and facts to it, um, 
are just obviously not true, right? It's a, really a distraction. Um, and it's very important to understand the medical details here. And, and you saw that also in the days after the leaked um, Dobbs opinion. You know, most people didn't want to talk about the actual justification of Roe or Casey or, you know, what an abortion is. They wanted to talk about, you know, this will lead, um, President Biden said, this will lead to the segregation of LGBT identified students at school, or this will mean they're going to outlaw contraception. It's as if they want to talk about everything other than abortion. And I think that tells you something about what they themselves know about the public opinion on this, that when a good uh, pro-life argument is made, it resonates with people. Uh, and, you know, American people are not on the side of abortion. And, and so, Aaron, that, that clarity you brought was really helpful uh, in thinking through about, you know, some of the tougher medical cases. Yeah. Another question we're, we're hoping you could um, clarify for us, especially, I think, with uh, Roe v. Wade kind of on the, the chopping block here and um, discussions about the decision on the table, something pro-lifers bring up a lot is uh, medicine, science, kind of uh, technology surrounding pregnancy. All of this has, has evolved and developed quite a bit since the time that Roe was decided. And we now know quite a bit more in particular about what's going on in the womb during pregnancy and more about unborn human life. Uh, what what do medicine and science have to tell us about the question of when human life begins? Well, I mean, that question is, and the answer to that question is quite clear. In fact, you can find it in any embryology textbook. Uh, a new uh, human life or a whole human organism comes into being at uh, the moment of fertilization or what we sometimes refer to as the moment of conception, the meeting of the sperm and egg uh, to form the, what, what scientists call the zygote or the, the single cell uh, human organism that then grows into a blastocyst, which is um, slightly larger, which then grows into an embryo, which then grows into a fetus. All of these terms that I'm using, these medical terms, are nothing more than a description of a particular stage of human development. They're not a description of a different kind of organism or a different kind of being. So, so calling something an embryo or a fetus, th those words function in a way that's analogous to calling a human being a child or an adolescent or an adult. These, these terms all describe the same human being or the same human organism. Um, but they just simply describe a different stage of development. And so when human life begins is a question that's been clearly answered scientifically. It begins at the moment of conception. What the, what the law to permit abortion has done to try to do an end run around that scientific fact is to attempt to distinguish between a human life or a human being or a human organism and a human person, and this idea of person being a legal construct to designate a human being who has uh, human rights and who is protected under law. Um, but the problem with trying to drive a wedge between a human being and a human person is that um, the, the criteria for what counts as a human person is always going to be arbitrary. It's going to be decided by uh, people in power and cer a certain class of human beings is going to be excluded and discriminated against and, and mistreated. So the moment we start trying to say that there are certain human beings uh, that either due to their stage of development 
or due to uh, their status of still being in the womb or due to their skin color or their level of disability or their age or their illness or any other criteria with it certain class of human beings is no longer protected under the law, we are, we are headed down the road of, of tyranny. We're headed down the road of, um, of killing innocent human beings. Every time in human history that a regime has attempted to do this, it's ended in some form of disaster, some sort of, um, you know, terrible tragedy, uh, that, uh, that resulted in a certain, group of human beings, um, being, being harmed or liquidated or, um, or, or simply killed because they didn't have the, the characteristics that the ruling class saw as, you know, worthy of, uh, protection or worthy of inclusion in the human family. And, and abortion is no different in that regard. I think it's very important to understand that the question of when human life begins has been clearly answered by science. And this arbitrary distinction between a human being and a, a human person um, is is a legal construct that, um, in, in the past and in the present, uh, continues to lead to um, you know very very bad outcomes. Yeah, that's another when when Alexander and I were drafting the it's the very first chapter of the book that we you know discuss you know, the, the, the harms to the unborn child. And when we get to, you know, what are the justifications that the pro-abortion side makes? And we get to all the per- personhood arguments and we have to explain to readers the Peter Singer style personhood and the Michael Tooley and the Marianne Warren. And it's just striking um, how unpersuasive those arguments are. And everything That's you just right. said about, like, you know, the whole history of when we've denied personhood to a certain segment of the population, it's always been might makes right. And it never has ended well for those uh, who were in power. And I think that's why you see so many people at the popular level try to say it's just a clump of cells or, you know, science doesn't know when life begins. I mean, the actual science is just, as you said, crystal clear. And yet the philosophy of personhood is so um, draconian and it's so kind of, you know, um, mistaken that I think that's why people would instead want to debate the issue on the biological grounds. Yeah. Yeah, the and any criteria that abortion advocates have proposed to try to capture unborn human life under the category of non-personhood um, does one of two things: uh, either it doesn't actually apply to unborn human life, or it does it does too much work, and um, you know the criteria has something to do with, let's say the you know, the ability to autonomously direct one's own life choices, which of course applies not just to unborn human life, uh, but to newborn human beings, uh, to elderly individuals with dementia. And uh, to, d- to deal with that issue, some advocates of abortion uh, actually follow that logic to its logical conclusion and end up making public arguments in favor of infanticide or in favor of euthanasia. Um, and as as horrifying as that is, we could say, well, at least at least they're being at least they're being logically consistent, and they're following their premises out to their logical conclusion. It becomes a kind of you know what what philosophers call a reductio ad absurdum, and you know follow, follow your premises out to the logical conclusion, and they result in, in an absurd result that nobody would accept. That suggests that maybe your premises are wrong. Um, 
but you know, more often than not, people don't want to sort of say the quiet part out loud. So they, they go on just muddying the waters. And that's, I, I think the kind of propaganda that you described at the beginning of this podcast, that's the function of, of those, those sorts of, um, you know, confusing sort of, uh, the, the fog of, of grossly inaccurate information and the cloud of, of just nonsense that is thrown up when you start um, talking publicly about abortion functions to, to get people not to think uh, rigorously or logically or clearly, because that's, that's probably proven to be the most effective means for advocates of abortion to avoid having these arguments. Because once you start having these arguments, um, the pro-life position starts looking uh, clearly like the most logical uh, way to go. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And I mean, you think about it, it's the 1972 um, journal article, academic article by the academic philosopher Michael Tooley was titled Abortion and an Infanticide. And, you know, there's some academics like Tooley, like Peter Singer, that are willing to kind of bite the bullet and have that logical consistency. But it's never um, been persuasive or acceptable uh, to the American people, which is why the political uh, pro-abort movement really has to muddy the water. Um, but let me change gears real quick because, you know, we, we've asked you about, you know, abortion ever being medically necessary and then, you know, the science of when a human being exists. Um, you know, for our listeners who don't know, your expertise um, is in psychiatry. Um, you know, you're a practicing psychiatrist. You've taught psychiatry at the university medical school level. One of the arguments that we see abortion advocates make is that, you know, women need abortion for their um, mental health. Uh, and then one of the counter arguments we see pro-lifers make, and we cover this in the book as well, is um, that actually a, a abortion has negative um, consequences, mental health consequences for women. And, and this is particularly the case with um, chemical self-administered abortion. Um, could you share with listeners you know, your insights into that aspect of the debate? Sure. This is a really important issue, and I've, um, I've dug into the research on this uh, very extensively. Um, and, and, and written about it fairly extensively in some expert witness declarations um, that I've submitted to the court, including, including actually on, a, on the Dobbs case, on a different aspect of the Dobbs case that was being litigated in, at the district court and uh, the circuit court level. But long story short, uh, lots of research has been done on mental health consequences of abortion. And uh, the, the research suggests overall on balance and again at the at the individual level of this case versus that case there are always exceptions but overall on balance abortion tends to harm or detract from women's mental health uh, so we see elevated rates of depression of anxiety disorders of uh, suicidal thinking and suicidal behavior um, very clearly we see elevated rates of uh, substance use disorders, uh, drug, drug and alcohol abuse, and uh, disorders that are uh, sort of trauma-related, PTSD-type uh, problems when you compare women who have had an abortion versus women who carry their pregnancies to term. Um, there's ongoing debate about the details of, uh, of these findings, but I think the overall trends are very clear. And at this point, um, 
you know, difficult to, to refute those outcomes. So what we know from the research literature is that abortion tends to um, carry consequences for women's mental health uh, that, that overall is harmful to women. And it's important when you look at that research um, to make sure that you're looking at studies that follow women sufficiently uh, long term. Because one of the things that happens very often with abortion is that in the weeks or months immediately following the abortion, many women report a sense of relief or a sense that their stress has been reduced uh, by going through that procedure, which is understandable. You can imagine a woman in a crisis pregnancy situation trying to imagine how having a baby uh, might upend her life or negatively impact her financially and sort of all the all the social, economic, familial reasons um, that tend to uh, incline or push some women uh, in, in the direction of abortion. Those are very real concerns, and they, they weigh heavily on a woman facing uh, an unintended or unwanted pregnancy, particularly a woman who does not have sufficient support from uh, the father of the child or from her family or from the social network. And so abortion seems like a, a ready-made, sort of quick, easy, um, and many women are promised it's going to be a painless solution to that conundrum, to that um, difficult life circumstance. And so if, if you look at women's mental health kind of immediately after abortion, many women report that their level of anxiety diminishes, for example. But what tends to happen is if you follow them out long-term, you see that uh, the, the wounds or the scars from abortion may not manifest immediately, but they can tend to um, plague women uh, down the road. So many women, for example, report that uh, the, uh, the trauma or the sort of unresolved grief from the abortion does not resurface until they get pregnant again, which may be many years down the road, or perhaps it resurfaces when later down the road, um, they're married and wanting to have children and are dealing with fertility problems. And um, at that point, they, you know, or they're thinking back to a time when they were able to conceive and when they were pregnant uh, and chose to end that pregnancy through abortion and, um, and now they're in a situation in which um, they're hoping to have children and, uh, you know, struggling with, um, struggling with that. That can be another moment when uh, a woman starts to um, manifest the trauma or the depression or the anxiety or maybe turns to drugs and alcohol to deal with um, the, the sort of long-term uh, consequences of um, having, you know, made that decision to end the life of her unborn child. So the, the, the issues surrounding mental health and abortion are complex, but um, certainly if you look at the big picture and you look over a sufficient uh, span of time, you see that uh, the problems don't always manifest immediately, um, but eventually, um, at least for many women, uh, you're, we're left with a woman who has been wounded and scarred by having gone through an abortion. She's dealing with the additional anguish of 
having her pain stigmatized or, or sort of not publicly recognized, um, you know, unlike a woman who maybe has a miscarriage, who you know could it, could disclose that at least to close family or friends who would be sympathetic and understanding, um, even if she doesn't want it to be widely known publicly um, that she that she lost a pregnancy. Uh, in, in contrast to that kind of situation, a woman who has had an abortion may be dealing with complicated feelings of guilt and shame, regret, uh, and feel like, you know, my, I have no one that I can talk to about this pain. So, so the, the, the anguish is compounded by the fact that the, the grief remains hidden and unspoken. And, um, and so women are oftentimes suffering with those sorts of feelings alone. I've, I, it's interesting. I, uh, I, I've seen many women who decades after their abortion um, still have unresolved grief that's right there beneath the surface if you ask about it, but they've, uh, they've never disclosed their abortion to anyone. Um, and they've never talked about uh, what it was like to go through that. So women in their you know, fifth or sixth decade of life um, who you know, for the first time in the, in the context of a psychiatric evaluation, maybe when they're in the emergency room uh, with suicidal thinking, or they come see me in a clinic to deal with depression or some other mental health issue. Uh, when we get to their pregnancy history and I inquire about the abortion, um, you know, immediately when we touch on that issue, uh, the, the tears come and the grief is right there present in the room. Even if the abortion may have taken place 30 or 40 years ago. Um, this is actually the first time that um, maybe the, the, this woman has actually um, spoken about that to anyone or disclosed to anyone what had happened or what it was like for her to go through that. So th these are not wounds that time automatically heals. And, uh, and many women, sadly, sort of carry that burden alone, sometimes for decades. Um, and, and that can have profoundly negative uh, consequences on on her life. Yeah, I, I really appreciate all the kind of um, data you bring to bear on that, because I think something we talk about quite a bit in the book is how um, when it comes to women and, and uh, kind of the abortion rights movement, the language we often hear about abortion, we don't hear abortion supporters say, you know, it's great to kill unborn children, right? The argument is women need this or women are better off because of abortions. And, and kind of to tie into what you were mentioning about the kind of guilt and shame and stigma that's sort of kept to, to themselves oftentimes if, if women are, are struggling with these feelings after having had an abortion, I think a lot of that comes from sort of the language of the pro-abortion folks who want to say, you know, abortion is always a great solution. And if women um, do experience regret or sadness afterwards, it's because of pro-lifers who are shaming them, right? As opposed to maybe it's because we as abortion supporters deny that women might ever be sad afterwards for real or might actually suffer at all from abortion. Or And so they really minimize um, the idea that there are any harms, let alone mental health um, harms to abortion. So we talk quite a bit about that in the book, both kind of the the psychological after effects and, and harms that women suffer, the physical after effects. Um, and, and so I, I was hoping we could touch on um, kind of a, a similar theme. I, I know, um, according to estimates, chemical abortions are on the rise. They're now, more, they account for more than half of abortions. These are early in pregnancy, um, you know, usually around 10 weeks or before that, 12 weeks. Um, 
So I'm wondering if you could touch on specifically what are, if there are kind of more negative effects that women experience psychologically, certainly physically, but from chemical abortion, because, you know, in the case of an abortion pill, a woman receives it from a doctor, sometimes now even via telemedicine without seeing a doctor in person, takes it at home and undergoes the kind of you know, induced early miscarriage symptoms at home by herself. And so um, if you could talk a bit about kind of both the implications of chemical abortion being on the rise, but specifically the mental health implications of that for women. Right. No, it's a, it's a really important question. Um, I, I think abortion advocates um, see chemical abortion as sort of a direction that they want to move things in because it doesn't require that a woman go into a, a clinic doesn't require a woman have to undergo you know a procedure where she is uh, you know literally up in stirrups and you know mild, put under at least mild sedation and uh, a, a doctor is required to do the surgical abortion so the push for chemical abortion is a push in the direction of ease and efficiency and i i, I think uh, some people even have made the case that this is going to be less stressful, um, less potentially uh, traumatic or difficult for the woman undergoing abortion. But in fact, what we've seen from some early case reports, and I think um, there is a need for more robust research to confirm this, but certainly the, the early reports from women that have undergone chemical abortions um, or maybe have a history of having undergone both a surgical and a chemical abortion, surgical abortion in a, in a clinic and a chemical abortion at home, is that the latter actually in some ways is more traumatic, more potentially anguishing, um, and can lead to uh, more, an increased burden of a kind of complicated grief that's overladen with uh, guilt and shame. And, and the reason, the reason is this. So, well, I actually, there's a couple of reasons. Um, so listeners will forgive me for getting a little bit um, uh, explicit about what actually happens in a chemical abortion, but I, I think this is necessary to really understand the reality of what we're talking about. So a chemical abortion is not just taking a few pills at home uh, going to bed and waking up the next morning, not being pregnant anymore. What actually happens is that these pills, in, first of all, um, kill the fetus, and then second of all, um, expel the unborn child from the uterus. And uh, that pr whole process happens at home. So a woman ends up um, in the bathtub or on the toilet when uh the placenta and the uterine uh, and the um, and the sac and and the fetus is expelled very often the fetus is at a sufficient stage of development that the human form of the fetus can be viewed with the naked eye and the woman um, then has to dispose of the baby herself usually by uh, flushing it down the toilet so unlike going into a clinic and being under some form of, of sedation where, yes, she is getting a procedure, but she doesn't necessarily uh, see her unborn child. Uh, in this case, in the case of an abortion, she, she sees 
um, a bloody sack, or in some cases, even uh, those quote unquote products of conception that include a visible human form that's um, that's clearly uh, able to be seen. That brings home, I think, to many women, the reality of what exactly is happening and the reality of what unborn life in the womb actually is and looks like and makes it harder, I think, to dissociate from that and to keep it out of sight, out of mind. And the other complicating factor is that when a woman goes into a clinic, um, you know, and, and lays down on the table uh, and allows a physician to do the procedure that can put some psychological distance between her and the procedure in the sense that someone else is doing this thing to me or someone else is doing this thing to my baby. And I think that can help diminish maybe some sense of responsibility for what is happening. Whereas with a chemical abortion at home, the woman is actually ingesting the pills that produce the expulsion of um, the unborn child. And I think just psychologically that brings home the sense of my own moral agency actually affecting the death of, um, of, of the baby and actually producing the abortion. Um, so it's, it's sort of the psychological difference between, um, you know, maybe someone who gives the order to a soldier to pull the trigger versus the soldier who pulls the trigger and actually witnesses uh, the consequences of, of that action. And you could say, well, you know, morally, those two are, are the same. In both cases, the person is responsible because they're consenting for it, which is true. But psychologically, I think there there is a sense in which uh, the chemical abortion at home uh, introduces new psychological burdens to a woman who um, who is very up close and personal uh, and a, uh, in a sense a firsthand witness to the process um, rather than you know being in a in a state of mind where she is a little bit more psychologically detached from what's going on in the abortion and so, as a consequence of that, many women report that the chemical abortions act was actually more traumatic um, and it led to more complicated forms of guilt and grief uh, or regret or shame than um, th than the surgical abortions. Yeah, I really I appreciate that that helpful explanation, because uh, I think women are often told or kind of um, chemical abortion is billed as this sort of easy solution that you just kind of uh, take right. before you even really have felt like you're pregnant, right? You're not showing at all. And Planned Parenthood advertises chemical abortions as, you know, it'll just be like a heavy period. And that's just not the experience that, that a lot of people have. Right. And so I think it's important for women to know this is not just kind of like a nice magic pill and you wake up and everything's fine. Um, it's actually a lot more devastating than that. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, uh, unlike just a sort of a heavy period that many women report that the process is very painful uh, it involves a lot more um, bleeding than they anticipated, which, of, of course, um, you know, this sort of heavy uh, vaginal bleeding would be distressing for any woman, whether or not she was uh, she was aware that she was 
pregnant. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, I hate to drill down so much on some of the um, more explicit medical details, but part of the part of the process of informed consent, uh, from an ethical standpoint, is that women be adequately informed of exactly what to expect. And I think many women who undergo chemical abortions feel a sense of betrayal that um, what the process was going to look and feel and be like was um, was minimized. And they were not really told the truth. And when they go through the experience, they, they feel a sense of sort of betrayal or like they were, um, they were sold something that um, was not at all like what the actual experience turned out to be. Aaron, this is um, really helpful, um, and, and just I find um, this, you know, personally, you know, impactful in, in terms of, you know, what abortion does to the person who performs it, and whether that's, you know, a woman who self-administers uh, through an abortion pill, um, and that that led my mind to question, what does it mean for the medical doctor uh, who performs abortion? You, Zan and I, we have a chapter in the book about how you know, abortion has really corrupted the medical profession. Um, and, and, you know, we cover that in a variety of ways. You know, one is how it turned professional medical associations into just like nakedly partisan lobbyist groups on behalf of abortion. But I also wonder, you know, what this means, the level of, you know, the physician, him or herself, who specializes in killing unborn babies. I mean, could you speak to both about how abortion has corrupted your profession? So the, the purpose and the ends of medicine uh, since Hippocratic times um, have been the health and healing of the sick patient who comes to us for care, the vulnerable patient who, because of their illness, uh, needs to entrust themselves to the physician because the vulnerable patient may not have the knowledge or skills necessary to uh, affect their own healing. So trust is essential to the doctor-patient relationship. And the physician from ancient times has always been tempted to use his or her knowledge and skills for things other than health and healing. And starting with the Hippocratic Oath, Western medicine was was founded on the public promise, an oath is a, is a solemnly sworn public promise, to use one's knowledge and skills only for the purpose of health and healing. So in the Hippocratic Oath is, of course, a pre-Christian uh, document from the third century BC, wherein physicians promise not to do abortions and promise not to euthanize patients, uh, even if a, a patient asks for a, a deadly drug. So Western medicine was founded on the promise to maintain the patients and the public's trust by always using my knowledge and skills only for the purpose of health and healing. And that's been reaffirmed up until uh, modern medicine started embracing abortion. That, that has been reaffirmed and in most cases still is reaffirmed by our professional medical associations. So the American Medical Association, the, their code of ethics still maintains that physicians should not participate in euthanasia and assisted suicide, uh, still maintains that physicians should not use their knowledge of physiology or pharmacology to participate in capital punishment, uh, to participate in lethal injections, even when that's authorized by the state. Uh, the AMA doesn't take a political or moral position on capital punishment itself. It says, you know, you're, you're free to believe and vote however you like on capital punishment as a member of our 
uh, professional medical association. But as a physician, there's a there's an ethic internal to medicine that says you cannot, as a physician, use your knowledge and skills for the purpose of killing, even if that you know state sponsored uh, or state sanctioned execution uh, you know might be legally uh, justified. Unfortunately, when it comes to abortion, uh, we modern medicine lost its bearings and it abandoned this basic orientation. And that can't help but have a corrosive effect, not just on, on prenatal care or on obstetrics, but on other areas of medicine as well. Because again, we're, we're free to choose our premises, but inexorably over time, we're going to be pushed in the direction of, of following those premises out to their logical conclusion. And so what happens when you, when you introduce that exception to the general rule that, well, in the case of unborn human life, doctors can use their knowledge and skills for the purpose of killing rather than the purpose of healing, that's going to start to have a corrosive effect on the ethics of medicine as a whole. And so we see now the push, for example, uh, to allow doctors to use their knowledge and skills for the purpose of killing at the end of life. And I think the um, assisted suicide and euthanasia push that we've seen over the last couple of decades is a logical outgrowth of the acceptance of abortion in medicine. So we compromise those principles at the beginning of life and now, in, in many states, at least certainly, certainly my home state of California has embraced the idea that we could do that at the end of life as well by permitting doctors uh, at the end of life to prescribe a deadly drug for patients that request it. And so I think there is uh, a, a t- certainly a tight logical connection, but also there's, there's a kind of uh, institutional connection uh, between abortion and um, euthanasia and assisted suicide in medicine. And I think unless medicine can reorient and find its bearings um, and, and ground itself again in that great Hippocratic tradition that would say doctors should promise and should adhere to the principle that um, their role is health and healing and not killing, unless we could do that with abortion, we're we're going to continue experiencing the corrosive effects of that in other areas of medicine, particularly at the end of life. Yeah, I think that's really a central um, context and a a good point to wrap up our our conversation on. We have a a whole chapter in our book uh, about medicine and in particular um, how, you know, abortion is pitched as healthcare. One of the primary arguments in favor of abortion is this is just women's healthcare, right? This is nothing more than, you know, getting a tooth pulled or something like that. And you're kind of healing. And of course, Killing is not a form of healthcare, and, and we can see kind of similar to early in our conversation. When we're talking about personhood, how the the logic of depersonifying or dehumanizing uh, one vulnerable group of human beings naturally leads to doing the same um, to other categories, and it's not a society that any of us want to live in. So uh, we'd love to thank you, Aaron, for joining us today. It's been a, a great conversation. Likewise, thank you, Alexandra and Ryan. I I enjoyed the conversation very much. Thanks for listening to Life After Dobbs. Ryan and I are co-authors of the new book, Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing, which you can order now. If you enjoyed our conversation, please subscribe, leave a review, and share it with a friend. This podcast has been sponsored by the Ethics and Public Policy Center. 
You can learn more about our work at our website, eppc.org, including our Life and Family Initiative.